Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. Dave Harvey here, and this is the Am I Called podcast. Justin Taylor is a guy who fills many roles. In addition to the ones most important to him, like husband and father, Justin's an elder, he's a blogger, he's an author, he's an interviewer, and he's also a PhD candidate at Southern Seminary. But today we're here to talk to Justin about his day job as Senior Vice President for Books at Crossway Publishing. See, Justin's unique role in the world of publishing kind of puts him in the front row to observe different trends and developments that may be taking place within the Christian publishing world. And I wanted to talk to him a little bit about that. Justin, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Justin, Crossway Books is a a well-established Christian publishing house and has been around for a while. And, uh, you know, your role there gives you the opportunity to track trends and see kind of developments going on in the Christian publishing world. What, what are some of those larger trends you're seeing in the publishing world right now? Yeah, you know, I think the most frequent uh, refrain that comes into my mind when I think about Christian publishing these days is that it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Um, I was struck not too long ago in reading Alistair McGrath's biography of G.I. Packer, where he mentioned that uh, Packer discovered in, I think it was 1954, an old set of Puritan books. And McGrath just makes this um, kind of throwaway comment that at that time, no Puritan books were in print anywhere in the world. It just struck me, you know, 60-some years later, how different the world is in terms of evangelicalism, in terms of Reformed theology. We're we're really swimming in uh, an embarrassment of riches, to mix a couple metaphors there. Um, so I think there's there's a lot going on that's very encouraging. I'm very encouraged by what's going on at Crossway and the sort of things that we are publishing. But I think at the same time, it's the worst of times. It's um, you know there's an, been an explosion of Christian publishing, and that means that a lot of good projects that never would have seen the light of day a decade or two ago. Um, are now available. And it also means that a lot of bad projects and uh, a lot of gimmicky materials and a lot of things that uh, may scratch itching ears are also available. So it's it's a time, I think, mainly to be encouraged, but um, I confess that sometimes when I look at the bestseller list, uh, encouragement is not the first thing that comes into my mind. Now, one of the bigger things that Crossway has done over the recent years is publishing the ESV study Bible or the the ESV Bible, and I'm just curious, why does a publisher decide to to publish a new version of the Bible? I mean, tell us a little bit of the backstory there of of why that seemed like it was such a necessary project. What deficiencies were you discerning in other versions? Well, we don't want to speak negatively about other versions, but you're right that Crossway discerned before my time uh, that there was an opportunity with regard to the translations on the market. Um, You know, I think the ESV has been successful over the past a decade and a half, but it was not a foregone conclusion from the get-go that it was going to make it. There are so many translations right now that 
there really needs to be a very compelling rationale in order to do a new one. Uh, and the ESV is not a brand new translation. It's, um, it's picking up on the RSV, which a lot of uh, stalwart evangelicals memorized from, like Wayne Grudem and John Piper did their own scripture memory for years and years from the RSV, because it's in the the family or lineage of translations that date back to the King James Bible. So there's a, a heritage and a stream, and it goes back even further to uh, William Tyndale. So a lot of the the verbiage and the, the word choice that you see in the ESV uh, is still, it, it's recognizable because it goes back to Tyndale, it goes back to the King James. So they saw an opportunity that the RSV was out of print, even though it was a very good translation, and wondered, could we go in and fix some of the theological problems that were existing with the RSV, take out some of the these and thous and uh, update the language bring in the best scholars that we can to uh, go through each book of the Bible? And can we create an alternative between translations that are very literal, but sometimes read uh, woodenly, or other translations that are very readable, but may not have quite the precision or may not show all of the connections between clauses or, or, or repeat some of the same words when the underlying Greek or Hebrew words are the same. So they wondered if there might be a, a sort of a third way between the two uh, that could be essentially literal uh, and, and bring out the qualities of literary beauty while staying in the stream, this historic stream that goes back to the King James Version. So it's... Uh, up to the reading public to determine whether Crossway has been successful in that. But I've been very thankful for the ESV, and uh, we hope others are finding it helpful as well. Justin, just out of curiosity, were there ever, were there any portions of the of the translation process where the translation team just got got locked up over a passage and really had to hammer it through over a long period of time, or? involve other experts or, or anything like that? Any interesting stories like that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, if, if pastors are listening to this and uh, they do exegetical work, um, maybe that's the closest analogy. They can, they know intuitively what it's like to pour over a difficult construction or to, to read multiple commentators that disagree. So you imagine taking that and then multiplying that tenfold with a committee. And anybody who sat on the committee knows that there are some very difficult decisions. How do you bring things to a resolution? Um, you know, and the fact is there's uh, translation work is different from um, doing an interlinear you know, or just doing kind of a wooden, uh, literal, you, you can do that, and it's not a very readable translation. In fact, it's not really a translation. So there are all sorts of, every single verse really uh, could be debated. Just the nuances of it and the best way to express it in English that's understandable, that has the qualities of literary beauty, and is accurate. Um the most recent one, and uh, readers may even be able to Google this or uh, look on my blog because the BBC was there to video uh, some of this discussion in our most recent meeting, uh, the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. I was attending that. I'm not on the committee, uh, but was discussing the language of slavery, um, bond servant, 
servant, those whole cluster of words, how are those best translated? Some have argued very forcefully that uh, every translation should say that, you know, Paul was a slave of Christ. Uh, there were all, there was an extensive debate uh, with these guys with a lot of historical background and a lot of data trying to discern what what's the best nuance to express that in English. It does carry over uh, some very positive things that Paul was trying to attend, intend, for example, but also carry some connotations, that word, given our American context, that we might not want to include in it. So they're all complicated debates, and uh, I know that I had a, a rare privilege of being able to see these guys uh, do it in person, and it is uh, something I wish everyone could see because it's incredibly difficult work that requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment, a lot of prayer. And uh, it's easy for us to read our translations and say, oh, I wish, I wish they'd translate it this way or that way. But there's a lot, of, a lot that goes into the translations that most of us don't get to see. And we thank God that there are people that are competent and trained to be able to, like that, to be able to protect the purity and the integrity of the canon. Justin, I, I was thinking recently about, uh, you know, Tim Challies did the the series on the bestsellers of evangelicalism, and and uh, one of the things that struck me as I read through the list uh, was how diverse the list was. It was, you know, uh, Crazy Love by Francis Chan and Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller and I Kiss Dating Goodbye was on there by Josh Harris. I mean, some of the books seem like they're they're real outliers. In other words, you can't you can't make the case that the author's reputation drove the sales. Um, so, is it correct to say that it's almost impossible to predict what's really going to catch fire in the evangelical world and 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 sell well or circulate well? Yeah, I think that's a very accurate statement. Um, when we consider a book at Crossway, we, we have a whole set of criteria that we use. We have a committee that uh, we're able to draw on multiple perspectives, so it's not just one person making the decision. Um, and we're all doing our best. We're bringing our years of experience and our knowledge of the industry and our theological discernment to try to make these decisions, but um, none of us have a crystal ball. And uh, none of us can predict with, uh, sometimes with much accuracy. Um, you know, after a while, you have a, a fairly good idea, and you think that some book could uh, be a breakout book. Um, there are books that we don't expect to do well that do uh, better than expected. And there are books that we think this, this will really, um, you know, find a great audience, and it, and it simply doesn't. And the ones uh, that you, you find that that you can anticipate that they're going to do well. What what are some of the thing what are some of the components of the book that make that kind of lasting impact? Yeah, I th I think there are at least two things. I mean there are, there are multiple things. But uh the the clarity or power of the writing is certainly one and uh the position or platform of the author is another. Um it you don't need to have a great platform or a well-known name to have a successful book. Um, you know, the author of The Shack was not 
well-known before he wrote his first book, which became a runaway bestseller. And it was not published with a traditional publisher. It was self-published. And I Kissed Dating Goodbye was Josh's first book, wasn't it? Right, right. And, you know, among his core audience, taking Josh in particular, he did did have an audience, I think. It was well-known in in the kind of the bullseye of the uh, target audience. And then that audience read it, discussed it, debated it, and then there was the pass-along factor, um, which is when people are talking about the book and when they're saying to a friend, you really need to read this book. Have you read this book yet? You haven't read this book? Well, you really need to consider this. Um, that's the sort of um, viral marketing or or aspect of the book when people are talking about it, buzzing about it, and nobody's asking them to tweet about it. They just want to tweet about it. They want to discuss it with their friends. And that's the thing that publishers can't create. Everyone wishes we could, uh, but you could throw a million dollars of advertising behind a book, and if people aren't gripped by it and telling others about it, uh, then it's just it's going to have limited success. It really, I think the most successful books come down to um, people taking the initiative to become marketers for the books that they love and they, they want to tell other people about. Yeah, and how do you, how do you counsel um, an author to walk the line between the, the kind of <clears throat> self-promotion and book promotion necessary to make a project successful – and and the kind of uh, you know humility necessary to make a pastor successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that if someone doesn't feel that tension and feel it pretty regularly, that's a danger sign. Um, living within the tension, I think, is half the battle. Being aware of the dangers, um, you know, on, on both sides is is really crucial and. I think that's one of the things that disturbs me is that there are uh, a fair number of people, how many exactly, I'm not sure, but through my own observation of evangelicalism that, that just don't even seem uh, like that question that you asked, Dave, is on the radar screen. And I think that in and of itself is problematic. Um, I think we should always be wrestling with that and feeling that that tension. Um, you know, Proverbs says that it's best to let another man praise you, and I think that that's a good guiding principle. Uh, I think it's important to remember that there are no pure black and white checklist sort of uh, things. You know, in our uh, segment of evangelicalism, there's always a tension to want to have a checklist spirituality. Just, you know, show me the rules. I don't want to have to use discernment and wisdom all the time here on these gray matters. Just is it right to retweet a compliment or is it not right to retweet a compliment? Is it right to ask somebody if they'd be willing to endorse my book or is it not right to? Just give me the list and I'll follow it, uh, which is not the way God usually works. Um, so I think I think there are several things that, that a author, a potential author can do. And I think one of the things is simply to be living in authentic community where you have good friends who are able to tell you um, – honestly and without fear if they think you're crossing the line. Um, I, you know, to have people with whom we can bounce things off of and to say, just check me here. Is this coming across as 
making much of myself or am I making much of God? Um, you know, there, there are various things I think we can do. And I think, you know, to not uh, assist in the promotion of the book uh, is problematic to some degree. And yet to uh, flog our book or to be constantly talking about it. One of the things I try to use in my own mind is um, maybe called content marketing. When I was trying to let people know about the ESV Study Bible, I was always pointing them to uh, sample content or materials or excerpts from the Study Bible, which were free and people could read them and they could benefit from them. And if they never bought the ESV Study Bible, at least they could read something edifying or encouraging or instructive. Um, so I was always trying to point to content, which if they liked it, they could go out and buy it and get more. That to me is a little bit different than you know, constantly tweeting or writing on Facebook or telling people, buy my book, hey, could you mention my book? Um, there's a distinction there that I, again, the lines are a little bit fuzzy, but I try personally to focus on the content rather than myself or the fact that I wrote a book. Um, another thing could be pointing people if there's a, a great discount on the book. It's the difference, I think, between being servant-hearted and other-centered and wanting to serve others with the message that one's written versus trying to promote oneself and uh, subtly sometimes make yourself look better. Well, that's very helpful, Justin. Thank you. Um I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to pick up on some of the things you were saying about pastors, and because I I was just thinking about some of the controversies surrounding the subject of of ghost writing, and uh, I guess it's not a controversy as much as it is questions that continue to be asked uh, about the ethics of it, and. So why don't you why don't you speak to that for a second? I mean, let's just say we have a pastor who wants to put his ideas out there, uh, but can't write or doesn't want to write or feels like he is too busy to write, and so he hires a, a ghost writer. And uh, you know, wh- when is when is ghost writing a reasonable step, and and where might it become unethical? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Dave. And I um, I have strong feelings about ghost writing. But I think we have to acknowledge that, um, again, this is a subject where there is some grayness. Um, you know, uh, we want things to be very simple, black and white. Is ghostwriting good? Is it bad? Is it ethical? Or is it unethical? And we need to try to think through it um, carefully. And, of course, that always starts with defining our terms. And uh, th- that's where it's a little bit fuzzy because... Um, when you think about a situation like the President of the United States, um, most people uh, don't accuse him of doing something unethical because someone has written the speech for him. A, a speechwriter in that case uh, knows his, um, his public policy, knows his goals, knows the sort of language that he uses, knows what he wants to accomplish in the speech, and is able to write it in such a way that it sounds like uh, the person. So a speech from President Obama sounds different than a speech from uh, President Bush because the men speak with different uh, vocabulary and different cadences and have different perspectives. So in, in that sort of situation, it doesn't seem uh, necessarily wrong. Um, but I think when we're talking about writing um, 
something from a Christian perspective, it gets a little bit more difficult. I, I think one of the key uh, factors that we need to, to put into the mix here is the issue of deceit, deceitfulness, and uh, whether one is giving the impression that one has skills that one does not possess. I think that's one of the, the problems is that people can read a ghost-written book and assume that the author wrote it, that they're a very good writer, uh, when in fact they didn't actually write it. So probably the best way to think about ghostwriting is, is a spectrum. Um, you, you have on one end, which is not really even ghostwriting, somebody sitting down, uh, writing a piece, and then having someone else come alongside and edit it. Um, make suggestions about um, word order, uh, sentence structure, use of vocabulary. Uh, then you move a little bit to the right of that along the spectrum, and uh, the editor is going beyond that and adding illustrative material, uh, you know, suggesting illustrations, um, thinking of quotes from other books that could be added. On the far extreme to the right, uh, that spectrum would be uh, somebody who simply sits down and writes a book for another person. Um, you know, somewhere in between there can be sermons that a pastor has written that somebody comes alongside and does a lot of work on it. So I don't think there's any shame in the situation of somebody being a very gifted orator, being a very gifted expositor, a very gifted preacher who for whatever reason, when he or she sits down to actually write, is not gifted at uh, the written medium. Maybe a very compelling speaker. There's there's no shame in needing help from somebody who uh, may have the inverse set of skills, who would be extremely boring to listen to, but writes beautifully and compellingly. It's more about attributing credit and... I mean, to put it in a biblical principle, giving honor to whom honor is due, honoring those who have contributed their gifts to putting your message out. That's right. That's right. And if if listeners go um, and listen to a podcast that John Piper did uh, on, on this issue of ghostwriting, seeking to define it, seeking to uh, give some principles on the ethics of it, that's his main question is if you got help uh, – What's the motivation for not wanting to acknowledge that help and to make that clear that you had help with it? It's hard to um, not see that as a form of pride, that somebody wants to get solo credit for it. Uh, now, I know some people would object to that and say, if, if I'm given dual credit, people will just assume that other person did all the work. And, I, hey, I did you know, 70% of the work here. It's not like... This was a, a ghost-written celebrity biography where I had nothing to do with it. Um, so again, I think that's a gray area, but I think we just mainly need to be honest with ourselves and ask you know, questions about pride, questions, as you said, Dave, about giving honor where honor is due, the humility to acknowledge we can't do it all ourselves. And I, I think that's one of the dangers is that we're giving the impression that we can do everything. We can be the world's greatest husband, world's greatest dad, world's greatest preacher, world's greatest blogger, world's greatest author. Um, the, the longer you live, the more you see that nobody can do it all. 
we all need help, and there's no shame in acknowledging that. Yeah, it's funny you would mention uh, John Piper because just this morning I was I was reading his uh, <clears throat> brothers. We are not professionals, and and in it he there's a paragraph, and uh, and he he footnotes the paragraph and then acknowledges in the footnote that the uh, that the paragraph was inspired by the thought of somebody else, so that somebody else expanded the idea. And so it seems like in his convictions, he's so tenacious in in defining his uh, his authorial integrity that he he wants people to know that uh, he got the idea for a paragraph from somebody else. Thought, yeah, wow, that's a high bar. It is. And I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I used to work for Piper and uh, I believe it was Modern Reformation uh, one time asked if he would uh, be willing to let them publish something he'd written on justification. And I had something on my files that was unpublished by him on justification. And uh, I essentially just rearranged elements. I don't even know that I added an intro sentence. You know, maybe I did one or two, but it was essentially all of Dr. Piper's writings with me rearranging it a little bit. And he insisted that the byline read John Piper with Justin Taylor, Mm. which I don't personally agree with. I think that's a little bit too excessive, but I think that shows his integrity of he does not want anybody thinking that he sat down and did that all himself. Again, I don't think we need to go quite that far. But I would rather see people err on that side probably than the side that they sometimes err on. Well, I think particularly for younger guys that want to get – want to be writers and want to begin to get the messages that they're developing out there, um, you know, to be able to set a high bar to, to model oneself, uh, to, to apply scripture certainly, but also to see the example of somebody like John Piper and the integrity in which he – he brings to ascribing credit and ensuring that those who should receive honor receive honor with how they've helped him. I, I think that's a great bar for others to look at and measure themselves against. Yeah, I agree. Justin, speaking of uh, of John Piper, uh, I read a quote once, and I don't remember where it was, but uh, it was just three words. He said, "Pens have eyes." And uh, in fact, I wrote that on the first page of a journal that I was doing at the time. And, uh, you know, by that, I think he, he seemed to mean that it's through writing that one sees more clearly where I, ideas crystallize and, you know, reflection comes into order. Um, do, do you write so that you can think more clearly? Yeah, I, I do find that to be the case. And I think that... Uh, when something has not been written, we can uh, have illusions that we are thinking clearly about something. We think, well, I have a pretty good grasp on that. And then when you actually sit down to to put the pen to paper, you discover the the unclarity or the muddledness. Um, so I, I find that to be true too. Um, you know, Calvin in his Institutes, he cites Augustine saying, I count myself one of the number of those who write as they learn and learn as they write. Mm. So there's a dynamic process there. Um, I, I'm learning something, so I'm writing it. And as I'm writing it, I'm learning something. Um, 
Ed Welch one time talked about there being three different levels of clarity. He says, when I um, am only thinking about something, you know, I have these thoughts, but they're, they're muddled, they're embryonic. Um, so that's the first step or first level he's thinking. And then when he has to speak about it, his thoughts become clear, but not always. And then when it's when he's actually sits down to write, there's just this next level of clarity. Um, you know, when we speak, we're going so fast, and uh, we're not we're not thinking through each word. Even as this sentence is pouring out of my mouth, I'm not really able to think about the sentence structure ahead of time. I'm not able to go back and to to rearrange things or to choose a more appropriate word. So it is a different uh, part of our brain and mind, I think, that's being engaged, but. I do think that's true. Um, yeah, and and I think for you know for guys listening, it's it's not just writing as if writing is stream of co- putting your stream of consciousness on paper, but it's really the the editing process, isn't it? It's it's the process of of hammering out an idea until it's as sharp as as can be. So it's it's through the editing, the rewriting, the rethinking that you know the thought pounding editing uh, more than just, you know, vomiting on a page um, with your first round of thoughts. Right, right. Yeah, if you, if somebody were to pick up a book on writing, my my best guess is that it would have at least three bits of advice. Number one, write a lot. Number two, read a lot. Number three, rewrite a lot. Um, Roald Dahl said good writing is essentially... Uh, rewriting. Uh, Elmore Leonard said, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Um, that all these great authors, um, you know, say, I may not be a great writer, but I'm a pretty good rewriter. Uh, and I, I think especially younger guys assume that, that the first draft is going to be good enough. And they don't understand that, um, the work that even the the really great writers um, put into writing and writing and rewriting and rewriting. Um, you know, one author said, I, "I've rewritten often, often several times every word I have ever published. My pencils outlast their erasers." Hmm. Uh, we need to be uh, diligent about the task of of rewriting, and I, I think they're. Uh, we, we've lost the art of delayed gratification, and we—I think some of us have seen younger writers write at a young age and be successful. And you know, when it, whenever it's not yourself or people in your own community, you just assume everything looks easier from a distance, uh, and all we end up seeing is the finished project, product, and um, and we don't really understand all the the blood and sweat and toil and prayer that. Uh, really goes into crafting something good. So, Justin, is it just me, or does it does it seem like the authors are getting younger um, that are being published now? Well, we're all getting older, so all all of these people following in our train are are younger. Um, it's like me watching college football players; they seem to get younger every year. I think it's me getting older uh, every that's year. A, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. Um. So I don't know. I don't have a great, great read on that. You would think that I would, being in publishing. Um, yeah, I I do think. So that, that wouldn't be a goal for for the Christian publishers to be 
that a goal that you're aware of or that is in circulation that uh, you know would like to see younger guys saying more? I'd say yes and no. I think as a publisher, every publisher probably has their older stalwarts. And at this point, they may be in their sixties, seventies, eighties. Um, you know, there's there's probably a second level of uh, good authors in their forties and fifties, and then you know a third level of authors who may be in their twenties and thirties. And it's wonderful to find a younger author who is going to have a, a long writing career. So that's one of the things that, that we look at when we consider a new proposal. This may be a good book, but is this, this sort of this person's one message? This may be the only book they have in them, and, and that's fine. Um, first of all, God has not called or promised any of us to write a book. Um, secondly, if he has called us to, to write a book, he hasn't promised us more than one book. So that's fine, but we're looking for authors that can become good long-term contributors. So for us, somebody like Kevin DeYoung is a is a great author to have because we know that if the Lord continues to give him strength and energy and wisdom, he will continue writing for many years. Uh, that's a little bit different situation than somebody who may just have kind of a flash-in-the-pan idea. Um, but is not really going to be a long-term writer. So we do need to keep continuing to look for uh, younger authors, but it's not like you know we need to find somebody in their early 20s and um, that's going to connect most. Uh, one real simple and obvious reason is that somebody in their early 20s, uh, for the most part, doesn't have the same sort of experience uh, that somebody in their early 30s has, and, and the same is true to go on to the 40s and the 50s. So there is wisdom and experience that accumulate with years that bring something to the table. But there are very gifted young writers as well. So it's not something hard and fast that we're necessarily looking for. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, of how Packer, I think it, it's it's in Knowing God in in the front end of it where he, he references the illustration that contrasts the balconier from the traveler. So the balconier, he, he kind of puts forward this idea of a Spanish house with a road that runs underneath it. And the balconier are those that are up on the balcony and they're watching the travelers beneath them on the road. And the, the balconiers can kind of overhear the travelers talk and chat with them and and even comment to one another critically on, on the way that the travelers walk. Uh, but the travelers are facing a completely different set of problems, uh, you know, of, of which way to go, how to do this. In other words, problems of, of application and, and direction and, uh, and, and action, perhaps. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. So, you know, it can be dangerous for young people to write if they're just balconeers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. They've got to be traveling the road, writing and, and building models of, of the ideas that they have. Right. And that's where the best writing is going to come from. And, you know, one interesting illustration, I think, of age and experience in writing is to compare and contrast Michael Horton and Tim Keller. Mike wrote his first book, I believe, at the age of 14 and published it. Uh, and it's still in print. And it's a good book. I've read it, uh, Mission Accomplished. Um, yeah, Keller, I, I don't have the exact chronology fresh in my head, but you know, by the time Tim was... 60 years old, perhaps, he'd written one book uh, published with PNR on deacons, and it was a good book. 
but he hadn't written anything else, and uh, very few people knew him outside of his own church context and his PCA. But you know, over those years, both men continued to write. I mean, they've taken just two different paths in in writing. Uh, but Keller, all all those decades, was accumulating experience and wisdom and insight and preaching, and uh, you know, writing uh, material that was just only being seen by his local congregation or his seminary or just being stored on his computer. But if you had, uh, you know, let's say that you could be a publisher. And you could go back in time and you could know who Tim Keller is today. And you would think, oh, that, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to sign up Tim Keller when he was 30 years old to write a book on marriage or a book on prayer or a book on suffering or a book on uh, apologetics for skeptics. But if Tim had written all those books in his 30s, I don't think they would be one-tenth, one-one-hundredth as compelling and interesting and seasoned and why wise as they are today. So, again, there's nothing that uh, says that all of us have to publish young or publish quickly. There's a lot of uh, help to be had by just living life and, and uh, listening to people and, and honing our craft of writing. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And uh, and I, actually, for, for our listeners, we, we, we have a podcast that we haven't released yet with Michael Horton where he tells the story mm. of how God led him and inspired him to write at age 14 and the, the different people that, that helped him to do that. So we're excited about uh, releasing that soon. Uh, J- Justin, let, let's talk for a second uh, a little bit more about pastors. In fact, I, w- I want you to speak to the pastors that may be listening. I mean, their lives are busy. They have full schedules. They've got sermon prep and hospital visits and just a, a host of other things. Should the average pastor, um, ordinary pastor, like like most of us, um, should he make writing a priority because of the fruit that comes from writing? I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about publishing here. I'm just talking about writing. Should, should a pastor make writing a priority? And, and, you know, how can that help a guy's ministry? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And I, I'm always hesitant to give uh, ironclad rules, you know, to say every pastor should be a writer. Um, so maybe I'd qualify it this way. Probably most pastors should be writers. And I appreciate the distinction you made between writing and publishing. Uh, at the risk of over-quoting John Piper in this podcast, I heard him say one time that even if nobody was interested in reading what he had written, if, even if no publishers ever wanted to publish what he had written, he would still probably write the same amount that he does now uh, because of what it does for his own clarity of mind and thought. And, and it's like any skill in life. The more you do it, uh, if you're doing it uh, – you know, with awareness of what you need to do and how you can get better, you're going to improve in it. So if you, pastor, listening to this, are persuaded of, of what we've said about the connection between clear thinking and writing, uh, I do think it is an ironclad rule that every single pastor, indeed every person alive, should want to be a, a better thinker, a, a clear thinker. You know, able to discern uh, logical fallacies, 
to smell unclarity, uh, to propose solutions that are not only correct but are uh, phrased persuasively. I think that's a key part of leadership, and that's that's one element we haven't really talked about here. But to be a leader, uh, you can do it in a very authoritarian way, but the best leaders are those who are able to see uh, what could happen in the future with their imagination, clarity of thought, and envision obstacles between the current situation and where they're going, and then think of clear routes or paths to get from here to there and to convince their hearers uh, of of this course, that it's a wise course, that it's a doable course. All of that has to do with writing. And I think that if you're only orally presenting your vision for the church, you're only orally presenting your perspective on things, uh, in, in our culture that has a certain power, but it has certain limitations. And if it can be codified and written down and persuasively presented, I think uh You'll see that your your thinking is more clear, and that you are a more persuasive person, which should mean that you're also a better leader. Yeah, in other words, this this relates back to what we were talking about earlier. That that one way for a pastor to deepen his reflection, to order his thinking in a better way on on everything from how to exposit a text to what you want to say in the next family meeting is is to write. It's it's not necessarily it's not necessary that that be published. It's just it's just a path. It's a tool in order to get at the best kind of thinking that uh, that you're capable of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that doesn't mean you have to stand up and you have to read the whole document. But having written it, I think you'll find that things that you may have thought were were clear were not problems. We just see things more clearly, I think, when we when we read them. And I think we also need to meditate on the fact that, uh, as Christians, uh, God communicates to us primarily through His written Word. Uh, that's not the only way He communicates to us. He communicates to us through our conscience and through our spirits and through nature. But uh, God is a God of, of written words, and to, to think about the fact that um, you know He could. He could have found other ways to give us special revelation um, other than writing it all down. So the fact that we do need to read in order to discern the will of God and his, his, especially his moral will, uh, that has implications for us, I think, in terms of the priority of the written word and our writing of written words. Justin, we're going to wrap it up there. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to to give this interview. Thanks for loaning your insights to us on the topic of of writing and publishing. But but even more, thanks for giving your life to ensure Christians have resources that are going to shape how they think and and therefore how they live. Well, really, the uh, the pleasure is all mine, Dave. Thanks for uh, this conversation, and yeah, you know, I. I don't take it for granted that I get to work for a Christian publisher, and uh, it, it really is a joy to work for Crossway and work with authors like you. Um, couldn't ask for a better job, so thanks for the encouragement. This is Dave Harvey, and this has been the Am I Called podcast. For a growing body of free stuff on calling and leadership and interviews just like this one, 
Um, go to amicalled.com. And thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.